How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. It is a pleasure to welcome and honor somebody I uh, actually have great respect and admiration for, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, Ms. Randy Weingarten. Uh, Ms. Weingarten, thank you for joining us. I know you're busy there at the biannual Teach Conference in D.C., and I'm sorry to make it in person and thrilled that you were able to take the time to be on the show today. Oh, my God, I'm so glad to be on the show. Thank you so much. Well, I'm a big fan of yours, and not just of yours, what the AFT does. I'm a parent of a 7- and 8-year-old, so I'm one of those uh, moms and uh, parents who definitely pays attention to what's going on in our educational system. And Um, we're so grateful. Thank uh, you. Uh, I, I want to talk very briefly, and then we'll get into uh, more of what you're calling on educators to do. Um, the AFT has officially uh, endorsed Hillary Clinton for president. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yes. Some would say, I wow, mean, this the, is early for the, in the uh, For the primary, um, right. for the general election, um, our, co- our convention does those endorsements. But the elected vice presidents, the, the vice presidents that are elected by the convention, um, uh, traditionally do the um, nom- do the endorsements for the primary. Is there a reason that Mrs. Clinton was the AFT selection? Yes. I mean, first off, um, we love um, Bernie Sanders. We love Martin O'Malley. We love uh, Hillary Clinton. All of them have, you know, we have members in all the different states um, that they have, you know, all ably served in. But the, the um, reason was... Um, fourfold. Number one, we were looking for who shares our values, um, where the sentiment of the members are, um, electability, and and the reason for now was because do you want to shape the agenda or do you want to chase the agenda? And um, people from around the country, parents and teachers, are tired of having others shove policy into our face and say, just do it. The test fixation is a perfect example of that. The fact that the economy needs to be rebalanced is another example of that. And, and as we, you know, as we talked, um, because all the Democrats came to our meeting in June and went through group interviews, the Republicans all declined to come. They didn't even have the respect to answer our invitation. And we started talking amongst ourselves in terms of all the vice presidents of the AFT, and it was pretty clear in terms of leadership, experience, vision, um, and who could win or who was best positioned right. to win. Um, that's why the endorsement went to Hillary Clinton. And, and honestly, even as first uh, lady of go- uh, of the uh, governorship, you know, first lady in the state of Arkansas, she's always done a lot with uh, education, even when she was at Wellesley. I mean, this has been a real uh, part of her life, uh, education, women's issues, and many other things. Let's talk about, uh, before we get to some of the challenges. Right. The work- and then let, me, let me just say that yes. you're totally right. And look, it gets lost because people are frustrated about politics right now. They, they are frustrated with how the government works. And, and so what gets lost is that, you know, she's worked for in her entire life on behalf of kids and public education workers. 
let's talk about celebration first, and that's how you kicked off uh, this uh, AFT by by Biennial Teach Conference there in D.C. in your keynote address. When you were speaking to the thousands, first you talked about the celebration of the work that the AFT is doing. So first, let's talk about the work that the AFT is doing so people hear it from you. So look, we want all kids to succeed. We are huge believers in public education as as a propeller of economy, as an anchor of democracy, but also as a way for kids to climb up their own economic and education ladder of opportunity so they can dream their dreams so not and, and, and achieve them. And so public education is hugely important from pre kindergarten through college. But we also have to fight the disinvestment, the austerity mongers the um, um, privateers, the deprofessionalizers, those who polarize, because what they've tried to do is instead of helping in, in these huge, with these huge economic vicissitudes, instead of helping recreate a middle class, instead of helping teachers succeed, they have blamed and shamed and sanctioned. And test scores has been one of the big devices in which they've done it with. So what we've done is we've actually said, Yes, we've got to call out what's wrong, but we also have to do what's right. Let's come up with solutions that work. Let's work with community. Let's engage our members and do all this within the political sphere as well as the educational sphere. And I really wanted to highlight for people that that has worked. Not, it's not the norm. It's still the exception. But today's speech was about how we use professionalism, how we use our voice to bust through the door and empower our members and empower our, parent, our, our families to get to a better life. I want to talk about the challenges that educators deal with right now uh, in present-day America. So, you know, so think about it this way. Even the economists right now say that individual teachers have about a 10% effect and can affect 10% variance of 10% of student test scores. Even economists say that. So if you take a step back, that says a lot about what's happening in children's lives. And it's not just the bad stuff, but think about segregation, inter- poverty, half our kids are poor, um, uh, you know, less social mobility, things, nutrition, things like that. And so what a teacher is, a teacher is the first responder to all of that. But separate and apart from that, instead of that being honored and celebrated, what's happened for the last 20 years, particularly the last 10 years, and look, the Obama administration has been part of, of, of this problem and, and, and in terms of pushing this, is this test fixation that thus nothing matters other than the test score. And so as a result, what has happened is taken everybody else off the hook. And even if you believe that tests are a right way of, of, of accommodating or accounting for where students are, and I don't, I don't believe high-stakes testing do, but even if you did, what it basically says is the teacher is responsible for everything. So think about it. 300,000 teachers were fired during the recession. Um, class sizes went up hugely. Lots and lots of budget cuts to the things that kids really love. Um, lots of poverty, and yet we didn't have the community services, the wraparound services. We didn't have the engagement for students. We had lots of teachers who were taking money out of their pockets, and they were demonized and disparaged instead of given the conditions they needed to do their jobs. And so that's why we just did a survey. 30,000 people actually self-reported 
that said that people are really stressed out. Eighty percent think that um, that public officials don't, um, you know, give them the respect and dignity to which they deserve. And the biggest stressors: large classes, standardized tests, the mandated curriculum, and the lack of, you know, the time or professional development to do the things we're asked to do. But even with all of that, people want to stay in teaching, and they want to fight for a better way because they love we teachers, we love our kids, and we want to make a difference in kids' lives. And, and you can see that inspiration. I have friends that are teachers and, and are part of the union, and um, I, I think I always say, uh, you know, I think that teachers and firefighters and police officers all should be paid more because when you look at what they do, and especially teachers, and they have minds of our kids, it's our future. Uh, Ms. Weingarten, why do you think that there are so many people. Randy, in t- call me Randy, please. Oh, okay, Randy. Why are there so many people intent uh, on destroying public schools when there's a direct correlation between uh, school dropouts and those in our prison population, a direct correlation between uh, crime and less education, and that as a society, we're better off productivity wise, safety wise, and just uh, knowledgeability wise with more education? So I actually don't think it's a lot of people. I think that what happens is we have an elite problem, just like we have a 1% problem. And think about what happened with the Reagan administration. And with 20 or 30 years, if you have 20 or 30 years where all you hear is that public schools are bad, public schools are bad, public schools are bad, you start the public schools and then you criticize them relentlessly, then you peddle private alternatives, of course it's going to change people's views of schools. But even with all of that, when we, when, when teachers and parents engage together, and they work together to turn around instead of close a public school. They work together to get a curriculum that is really enriching into a school, to recreate the joy of art and music for kids, to have wraparound services so there's after-school services, there's, there's nutritional services, there's other things where the school becomes the center. Then you see people having confidence in public education. Uh, Randy, we have confidence in you. I, I look forward to you being back on the show. Get back to your conference. Everybody wants a piece of you, rightly so. Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. Follow them on Twitter. Joining us up next here is Mary Catherine Ricker. Mary is executive vice president of the American Federation of Teachers, and it's an honor to have her with us. Uh, Ms. Ricker, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon and welcome. Oh, good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. You know, there are people out there that are uh, making fun of Jeb Bush with regard to his position on Common Core. I live in California and broadcast live uh, from this state uh, where we take Common Core pretty seriously. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, let's so that people understand, because there is to me, there's so much misinformation about what Common Core is and what it isn't. Can you briefly explain to folks what it is and what it isn't before we talk about the candidates and their stance on this? Absolutely. So briefly, Common Core state standards are a set of standards that um, are built around um, English language arts expectations for students as well as math expectations for students that it, where, the, where the goal is to have common standards taught across, um, you know, across the United States so that students are um, expected to accomplish the same sort of things uh, grade by grade across the states no matter where you live. Why is it so unappealing to anyone, regardless of your ideology, for a kid to be well-rounded? Now, I'm not a dinosaur, 
But mm-hmm. I remember having social studies. I remember having yeah. child growth and development classes, marriage in the family, you know, civic type and related courses that were helpful. Uh, there was language. I grew up in the Boston area. We had a year of Latin. That may oh, not great. have been fun. But it was very helpful when it came to vocabulary. And anybody who went to medical school, it certainly was helpful. Why are people opposed, uh, Ms. Ricker, to, uh, you know, a well-rounded student? You know, it is, it's actually hard for me to answer on behalf of those folks because I actually do believe that common standards are healthy for us. But if I were to venture a guess as to why people are um, nervous or skeptical of this well-rounded student, it's, it's actually because in many respects, politics is coming into play because a well-rounded student may mean in that social studies class, for example, you're giving balanced time to the struggles our country has had to fairly represent all people as well as the heroes our country has had in our history, for example. Or in, you know, in, in English, it may mean emphasizing um, strong writing, writing standards and um, and there are people who feel like they you know they just want to be able to measure a kid's reading level and that writing sort of you know will uh, sort of haphazardly come along with that or in in controversial cases perhaps you know common science standards mean that students are going to be introduced to scientific com- concepts that are well uh, well regarded by scientists in our community um, and rather than uh, when you don't have common standards and you you can pick or choose or introduce something into a science curriculum that isn't actually science. Is there a pushback from some who are more religious and don't believe the public school system should get into climate change and still have that, you know, evolution versus creationism anger about educating kids? Because to me, I'm a mm-hmm. mom and my kids are seven and eight, and I understand at different ages you subject them to different things. But I, I think one of the great things about our minds and our children is you, you, sometimes you've got to lay it out and, and give them the ability to decide for themselves. That's right. And, you know, I actually think you've hit on a few different things to separate some of these conversations out and to certainly understand when the, com- when the conversation involves all of these things, right? Number one, I do feel like one of the most common goals both teachers and parents have for students is that we create individuals who can think for themselves. And so regardless of where you land on the idea of common standards, there are a number of people who really believe that teaching students to think for themselves is is a critical part of a robust public education system. And so we've got to have that conversation. And sometimes that conversation gets conflated with, and sometimes it, it needs to be absorbed with this idea as well of, you know, what are a parent's values they're instilling in their children versus what are the values we want a public education to instill in our students. And, um, and, and so I do think there, I mean, I, I've certainly heard some of the, you know, the, the concerns from, uh, you know, people who are in a religious community stating about uh, what, what, again, common science standards, for example. Um, and at the same time, uh, to your point, as, as a mom, and, and I'm a mom too, I actually want my students to be taught to critically think so that when something is presented to them, they actually know how to weigh the facts. They know how to separate out the opinions and, and form critical thought themselves. 
I, I also, in 2009 is when the Common Core Curriculum Standards came out. And at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, please, but isn't yeah. wasn't every governor left or right uh, backing this and committing to crafting them in their state 100% except for Rick Perry and Sarah Palin? So there was definitely broad support for them in, in 2009. Um, you know, my experience actually just in the state of Minnesota is that, you know, at, at that time um, we had Governor Tim Pawlenty who was very much in favor of, uh, of, the, of common standards right up until he ran for governor when he decided that um, he shouldn't be in favor of common standards. Why do you think that this has become, I mean, we have an election year coming up, but why has this become yeah. a political issue? It's not. It's an educational issue. You know, it is an educational issue. And actually, the one thing I would, I would capture on that point, too, is in some respects, some of the stumbling around the Common Core state standards in particular, some of it. Right, I will not attribute it to all of it, but some of it is around an incredibly poor rollout. Teachers had, you know, in some places, there were teachers who were given, you know, kind of a 45-minute training PowerPoint on the Common Core State Standards that are, you know, again, incredibly comprehensive. You know, so given like a 45-minute PowerPoint presentation right before the school year starts and said, there, now you know how to teach to the Common Core State Standards. Well, that, that's malpractice. And, you know, when you are expecting a high-quality education initiative to roll out, that is just purely malpractice. And so I think what you are seeing is a convergence of a number of situations, that being one of them, that really has elevated the skepticism to uh, common, certainly the Common Core State Standards specifically, but the, like a, the idea of common standards in general as well. And, and that's where my concern gets heightened. Uh, thank you for being with us. More than a pleasure to have you. I am very, very excited today that we have the American Federation of Teachers, which is an affiliate of the AFL-CIO, good friends of this program, and we are good friends of theirs as well, founded back in 1916, and the, today they represent 1.6 million members and more than 3,000 local affiliates nationwide. And the mission of the AFT a union of professionals that champion fairness, democracy, economic opportunity, and high-quality public education, health care, and public services for our students, their families, and our communities. And they're committed to advancing these principles through community engagement, organizing collective bargaining, and political activism, and especially through the work our members do, they say. Well, uh, really excited to have some great folks from uh, the AFT and different divisions of the AFT. First up, joining us is Vice President of the St. Paul Federations of Teachers, Nick Faber, is our guest. Uh, and like I said, they're an organization committed to working for better schools for children and better working conditions for all members. That sounds like a win-win-win-win. Hey, Nick, how you doing? Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. I'm good. How are you, Leslie? Good. And I know you're joining us live from D.C. Uh, you great folks invited me to come. Unfortunately, uh, my schedule didn't permit, so I'm so glad we were able to make it work and that you could be on the program today. Thank you, and uh, we appreciate your time. Absolutely. It's great to be here. You know, there are people out there that have a question, and I think it's a fair question, but I think they need to hear the answer. And, you know, some people say, what have you done for me lately with regard to teachers? What have you done for our kids lately? What do unions do for us? What do unions do for us as parents, the kids, the school districts, and even the teachers? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because one of the things we believe, especially at the St. Paul Federation of Teachers, is that we can, when we sit down with parents 
and actually uh, meet in a in a way where um, we we share the conversation about what we what our hopes and dreams are for our students. Ninety percent of what comes up in the conversation we agree on and what we can do is use some of our um, political power and so forth to to raise those concerns that parents have and bring them forth because we recognize that when we're working with community we're even more um, powerful in how we can um, create the kind of schools that our children deserve that our parents want for their kids and we've done a, a great job, especially in St. Paul, of, of bringing parents into that process in a really meaningful way. Our parents in St. Paul had um, a great deal amount of input into our contract negotiations and actually got to observe those contract negotiations and so forth as they were going on. Um, and we felt really great having them in the room supporting what we were fighting for, things like smaller class sizes, uh, more nurses and social workers and counselors in our rooms. Um, and uh, more meaningful parent engagement that engages um, parents directly with their classroom teachers. And one of the things I like, I'm a, a mom of a seven and an eight-year-old. Right. And I have to say, you know, being a parent's a lot of work. And yep. when I was a little girl, I didn't realize how much my mom was involved behind the scenes with those teachers. And as yeah. a parent, I now see that it's essential. You know, they say it takes a village, and that's very true when it comes to the education of our children, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, we in, engage in um, pretty directly at St. Paul Federation of Teachers and, and with the help of SP, or AFT, American Federation of Teachers, has been really supportive of this work is with the National Parent-Teacher Home Visit Project. Because a lot of um, our parents, um, you know, the, the schools I've worked in have been primarily um, Title I schools um, that are in the 90% free and reduced lunch range. And a lot of those parents um, don't have the time to get their way into school and become maybe as involved as your parents and my parents were. They're working three jobs just to get food on the table and so forth. So we have to look at a different way of engaging parents, both in the work of our union, but in the work of our schools as well. So um, we literally go out into the community um, and set up times to meet with parents in a place that's comfortable for them. Um, usually that's their own home, but sometimes it's a place of worship or a community center or the local McDonald's and just have a seat and um, get to know each other better and get to um, get to the work of forming a partnership that um, that benefits me as a teacher because um, those parents one way or another no matter what life has dealt our parents uh, no matter what they're dealing with right now they know things about their kids that can make me a better teacher for their kids and one of the so, things I think is that it definitely helps uh, have a better relationship between teachers and students and kids learn more is class size and I know that union teachers bargain for smaller class sizes that's something that unions and union teachers have worked hard for and and not just uh, present day but historically throughout our nation's uh, school system Absolutely. That was a key point that got parents involved in our last contract negotiations. Again, it was just side by side. Parents and teachers just thought that was so important. And, um, and we fought hard for it and got some class size caps that we're pretty proud of. Um, but we also recognize that sometimes, you know, there needs to be exceptions to those. And we said, you know, that's okay. But when, we're, when there's going to be an exception to one of those caps, we're going to have a committee that's made up of parents and teachers, and they're going to decide whether that's really important to um, have an exception or not. Like if it was going to split up a family or something, um, we, we don't want that to hold it back, but we just want to make sure that parents are involved in that decision if we're going to go beyond that cap. 
So we've been engaging parents in our schools just through our class size language because every time the district wants to go over that in St. Paul, we bring parents into the picture and say, you get a voice in this. And that, that's actually language in our contract that gives parents the right to come in and have a voice at the table about what their class size is going to be. And, and Nick, I, I also want to know, you know, politically, and especially on the right, I'm a lefty Democrat, uh, there's been a lot of demonization of unions, and, and teachers get attacked, and I feel teachers, you know, get paid far uh, smaller than they should, considering they have the minds and the future of uh, our country, of the world, and certainly of our children in their hands. Nick, tell, tell people listening, what, what, in your professional opinion, is the difference between a kid with a teacher that's part of a union you know, a union teacher versus a non-union teacher? You know, just look at the different parts of the state where we've, or the country, where we've got states that are, have collective bargaining rights. We, we're getting higher results, and that's nothing to um, downplay the, the hard work that our teachers in non-collective bargaining states are doing. Um, it's, you know, when you've got a union that um, can actually – um, advocate for its parents through um, and, and its families and its students through its contract and have really hard con- um, conversations about what can we make sure is in this legal document um, to make sure that we have the best learning conditions for our kids. Um, that's, that's going to be um, a place where a kid's going to get the best um, education possible under those circumstances. When we have situations where um, workers don't have a collective voice in what's going on in their schools, well, then we have um, people that are so far removed from our students making decisions about what kind of education they're going to get. And quite often that happens to be um, cookie-cutter approach type things that um, other people are making a whole lot of profit off of but aren't necessarily um, in the best interest of our students. Um, I really uh, thank you for being with us. Before we take uh, our break, we have less than 60 seconds. Any final uh, remark you want to make to our listeners today? No, I just, you know, I just really want to reiterate the, the fact that you know, parents and teachers, when they come together, they agree on everything. And um, it's just so important for us to be having those conversations in a meaningful way. I'm really proud of the work that we've done in St. Paul especially to bring parents and teachers together in meaningful conversations and then to use our collective power um, to bring the type of education our kids deserve into our schools. So thanks for giving me the time to talk about it some today. Nick, uh, thank you, and I'm sure we'll have you back again. Nick Faber, Vice President of the St. Paul Federations of Teachers. Follow him on Twitter at nfabe, F-A-B-E, the website spft.org. Back after this. The AFT was kind and invited me to come to D.C. for their annual conference they're having this week. Um, I had so much going on uh, this week I was unable to go, but I said, hey, can we connect and have you guys be on the show? And they said yes. So we're very excited to have members throughout this hour uh, from that great conference uh, with uh, the Amer- with the, um, the American Federation of Teachers. Uh, Kyle Zimmer is joining us. Uh, Kyle is president and CEO of First Book. Now, First Book's an organization that distributes millions of new books and educational resources every year to the largest and fastest growing network of schools and programs. And they do it not just here in the U.S., but also in Canada. More than a pleasure to have Ms. Kyle Zimmer with us. Kyle, good afternoon and welcome. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Thanks for including us. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us, and we're glad to have you as a part of us. Uh, tell us about First Brook. Uh, you guys are a nonprofit. Tell us about your organization. 
Well, First Book is a nonprofit that's really international, and uh, what we do, it's really just what you said. We focus on providing the highest quality books and educational resources to anybody serving children in need, zero to 18 years of age. Now, so people understand, uh, because I understand, you know, just from the resource materials here, that uh, your organization, First Book, has distributed more than 130 million books and educational resources to programs in schools serving children from low-income families. Now, I think people out there know that the lower-income school districts or low-income families in those school districts, which seem to go hand-in-hand, you know, some people might know that they don't have uh, after-school programs or they may not have pencils or erasers or other school supplies, but books and yes it is true they lack for the books as well correct um it is one of those things that if you grew up with lots of books it's very hard to wrap your head around the need but let me give you one number that keeps me up at night susan newman out of the new york university did a study some years back And uh, what she showed was that in the areas of deepest poverty, there was one age-appropriate book for every 300 children. And that's one of those numbers that, you know, Susan's a brilliant researcher, but even if she's off by a hundredfold and there's one book for every three kids, it's still a train wreck of a number. And, uh, and you know, when something as fundamental as books and high-quality books are not readily accessible, none of us can be surprised by the results, right? We've got 80% of kids from low-income families, 80% of them in the fourth grade are not at proficiency. This is a, this is a national crisis. Uh, no, no question about it. Why, why do you think that there's not enough attention paid to this issue? Because, you know, we know the cliche is knowledge is power, but we also know historically that it's a fact that uh, a more educated society is a more prosperous and productive society, has a lower crime rate. There's a direct correlation between a lack of education and crime. The list goes on. Well, I, I think that we have lost our way a bit in our focus on education, and people became uh, quiet or, you know, or maybe quietly acquiescent about school budget cuts and uh, increasing class size and lots of issues that all of us should care deeply about. And, you know, and, and AFT, and we're here at the TEACH conference and delighted to be here, you know, these, this is a heroic organization serving heroes uh, that are in the classroom every single day. And I know I have two kids of my own, and, and I, I'm always blown away by the effort that the teachers put in. But I, I think that um, there was a presumption always in the U.S. that the school systems would sort of take care of themselves or something, and it's particularly uh, exacerbated during economic downturns, but this is, this is a problem that as uh, our economic competitiveness comes in, you know, into jeopardy, uh, that's one problem, the tragedy of the individual, another problem, and really it's at the core of our democracy. 
free. So I think we really need to sound the alarm for all of us to get involved. No question about it. Speaking of getting involved, uh, you guys at First Book and the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT, you guys are promoting a partnership to fuel learning for children in need um, at this biannual uh, TEACH uh, conference that's taking place. Talk to us more about this partnership. Well, the American Federation of Teachers, we've been working with them for about four years. And to give you a sense, about 30% of First Book's uh, network is our, our AFT members. And they came into our partnership with their heads and their hands and their hearts because they know that their members, I, like the number, I just read this recently, Leslie, is that the number of teachers who dig into their own wallets uh, to buy books and resources for their classrooms is 94%. And they're doing it because they know that the resources are inadequate. So our efforts uh, really, you know, aligned completely in parallel with what they knew to be a real need for their members. And, and really also the role of the American Federation of Teachers is to aggregate that voice to elevate the voice of people who are working with, with kids all over the country. And that aggregate, that aggravated, <laughs> keep tripping over the same word, that aggregated voice is what is so central to our partnership because they tell us what classroom teachers need to make the magic happen for kids. And then First Book works hard to make sure that we make those resources available, accessible, and relevant. When we look at the problem here, what does providing school books do? Obviously, it aids in learning, but it's not just school books. You guys are provi providing uh, more, um, well, newer books, right? And the, the newer books have more accurate and newer information in them, I would imagine. Am I correct in that? Um, actually, we, we provide about 6,000 titles at any given time. The titles shift around. And, uh, and I think what's really important about the partnership is, let me give you one example. We have a program at First Book called Stories for All. And what Stories for All focuses on is the fact that the level of diversity in the content for children's books is uh, really bad. It's, I, I, the last number I read was that 93% of the stories uh, for kids in the U.S. are by and about white people. 93%, you know, and what, what that does is it uh, makes the books very, much less relevant to kids in need and kids from all kinds of cultures from all over the world that are very strongly represented in the U.S. population. But it also does a disservice to white kids because, you know, they're stepping out of their schools and into the big world beyond, and they haven't had the benefit of sharing the wonderful cultures of uh, the kids, you know, from all parts of the world. And Absolutely. So Stories Absolutely. for All sort of steps into that space, and uh, we listen to the kinds of books that, uh, you know. That We're running out of time, Kyle. Sorry. Kyle Zimmer, check her out, firstbook.com, at Kyle First Book.